Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on? How are you? I don't have exams. How are you? How are you managing all this? Uh, <laughs> I hate it. I hate it so yeah. much. I have one exam left tomorrow. By the time people listen to this, it will be done. It's on constitutional law. And uh, let me tell you that American constitutional law just makes me wonder if I made a terrible, terrible mistake coming here to do law school <laughs> instead of just doing it in Canada because I just don't understand how uh, this country is created like this. It just doesn't make any <laughs> sense in a lot of ways. But whatever. How are you? What, what's going on in your life? What's, what's new in your COVID world? <laughs> uh, well, school goes back tomorrow, mm, which is terrifying, which is wild. I mean, you know, school goes back tomorrow and we have how many infections in the city? A thousand in my city. And the death rate for the last 24 hours was something like 124 people. And our premier is like, yeah, fuck it. Let's go back to school. Uh, even though, you know, there's an outbreak at a Cargill plant in uh, Chambly in Quebec. And yeah, I mean, I feel like we're entering a new phase of what's going to be really difficult and brutal. And... I'm just going to hide in my basement. (laughs) That seems like the appropriate response. It seems like the smart response. Hide in your basement. (laughs) I think that anybody who has the the chance to decide to hide uh, rather than to send your kids to school, I mean, you know, you 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 should take that chance. Leave the spots in class (laughs) open to the kids who need to be there because their parents are at work. And yeah. um, and let's get through this together because, you know, the, the, the news coming out about what COVID does to everybody's body. I mean, you know, last week we were talking about you were mentioning how people uh, often get sick to the point of having chronic conditions and how that can affect the rest of your life. COVID seems to be doing that. It seems to be leaving people with renal failure and with other uh, organ problems and certainly like is presenting really brutal symptoms within children. And so it's just kind of like... I'm still back where we were four or six or 10 weeks ago where it was like, everything needs to stop. We all need to just fucking not leave our houses if we can avoid it and wait to see how this unfolds. And unfortunately in Quebec, our government's decided to run right towards the the option of experimental and see what happens in the next couple of weeks. So we will see. Yeah, I think there's been a really um, detrimental effect on just focusing on deaths. And I know why we do that. I know it's like the most urgent thing. Uh, You know, it's it's obviously the most tragic thing. So so people want to focus on deaths. But I, you know, I hope in the coming weeks uh, there's more stories about how people are affected beyond uh, just death, because I think that would really make people understand what's at stake in a in a different way, you know? <sighs> oh, totally. I mean, I have a, um, a Twitter a friend who's been sending me updates from emergency services scanners. So some of these 911 lines you can actually listen to live, right? Um, if you're interested in this, there's a whole world online. You can look it up and find out if you can listen to your local emergency services line. And he sent me a message today saying that he heard, uh, you know, a seven-month-old who's got COVID, who's in respiratory distress, being being rushed to a hospital in the GTA. And it's just like, 
you know, that that's what's keeping me home. Like, I don't want to have to deal with this with my kids. I certainly don't want to get sick either. And I mean, the parents, no parent wants their kids to get sick. And so, but the parents who are making the decision to send their kids to school, I can only assume just don't have much contact with the healthcare system. Like, I'm not really sure. And as a parent that has had a lot of contact with the healthcare system, I can say, uh, we should be doing everything we can to avoid that because <laughs> yeah. it's really not fun at all. And, and leaving those places open for parents that don't have a choice to make sure that it's not full. I mean, my kids' classes are full. Uh, only six kids are not going back to school in my kids' classes. Wow. And two of those kids are mine. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. That's very concerning. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's super sad. We picked up their materials this this week. And so there was a plastic bag for each kid of their nap blanket and all of the crafts they've done and all of the, the school supplies that we had to purchase at the beginning of the year. And you just had this real like feeling of, oh, my God, like kindergarten is over. Like there's no first day, last day photos. And I know a lot of parents get it's a bit of a control thing, right? Like you, you want to have as much control as possible over a, a completely chaotic world. And so you like to have these milestones and we don't have them this year. Um, although, you know, except for the kids that are going back. Uh, and it's worth mentioning as well that like school here ends earlier than the rest of Canada. So we're really only talking about a couple of weeks anyway. But, um, but they're going back and I really, really, really hope that there isn't a single... Um, bump in cases that's related to a school being open in this province. Yeah, me too. But beyond that, I'm sure we have some people to thank this week. Yeah, we do. Mm-hmm. I want to thank Kyle, Adriano, Evan, Jonathan, Catherine for your support. We totally appreciate it. There's also Janet, Marie, Bianca, and Nell. Uh, the 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 financial support has been wonderful. The moral support has been wonderful. And and Sandy, I mean, this episode is what what episode number is this episode? Fucking one hundred. Can you believe? <laughs> Can no. you believe we're over two hundred thousand downloads? A hundred episodes. That's wild. And like I asked on Instagram, I know you're not on Instagram. What we should do for our one hundredth episode? <laughs> and I got a bunch of great ideas. None of which are happening because I have a constitutional. <laughs> my exam tomorrow (laughs) and we didn't have a lot of time to plan but if you have some ideas about what we should do for 101 to separate like i had this uh, someone um sent me the idea that we should do like a live discussion that was friel thank you friel a live discussion where people can like talk to us through the internet i guess and we'll be just like in our rooms i suppose (laughs) on camera (laughs) answering you know um not quite Edmonton, but, you know, reaching the people nonetheless, uh, somehow. <laughs> I don't know. But if other people have other ideas or maybe we could do like a retrospective of stuff we've discussed. But, you know, when we started this, I did not. I was really skeptical about the whole project, as I've talked about before on this podcast. And so I'm I'm really wowed by all the support. So thank you so much for being a part of our little listening community. I also had some suggestions and actually the suggestions that I had, I think four or five people made the same suggestion to me and we're not doing that this episode, but we are going to start off a little bit or I am going to tell a little story that kind of fits into the theme. And the theme was (laughs) people want to hear us talk shit about people. (laughs) Oh, like specific people? I, I think more like prototypes of people we don't uh, we don't like or that are causing trouble or disorientation to 
uh, movements or to understandings or or whatever. But I had a, a lot of people say, yeah, you two need to talk shit about the people that you don't like. And I was like, oh, sorry, they want us hey. to move our private conversations public. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> that's a new that's a new threshold of donations <laughs> yeah <laughs> you trying to make me make enemies now like okay. <laughs> i got I a lot already like, scrabble yet yeah okay <laughs> right <laughs> interesting i gotta think about that one i i had to think about it too but then you know what something happened uh to me last night that actually allows us to start this episode uh, with a bit of a story. Now, today, we're not talking about this. What are we going to talk about today, for real? I mean, we are going to talk about today UBI, Universal Basic UB. Income. Okay. <laughs> the UB. <laughs> versus a strong social program. Like, we're, it doesn't have to be versus, but we'll get there in the conversation. That's what we're going to talk about. But we're going to just allow Nora to talk some shit first. <laughs> Nora, talk your shit. Talk your shit. Go I, off. Uh, Okay, I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to go off. I went off last night. I have to admit, I went off last night. So at about 5 o'clock, I uh, got a call on my office phone, which is super weird because on the weekend, only well, only three people called me on my office phone. Unfortunately, one was my, my Nona, my grandmother, and she passed away in the summer, so I knew it wasn't her. Um, and so since then, it's been my, my partner's father calls me on this line, and then like a lot of surveys do, which is sweet. So I get to do Toronto surveys <laughs> on my Toronto phone line. And so I answered it thinking it was a survey or my, my, my father-in-law wishing me a happy, happy Mother's Day. And it was a woman who was like, hi, is this Nora Loretto? And I was like, yes. And she said she introduced herself. She was with the Ontario Health Coalition. And so the Ontario Health Coalition is like a, a group. It's a not-for-profit that fights for public health care in, in Ontario. And um, she was... I mean, extremely pissed off at me, extremely pissed. And I was just kind of like, whoa, this lady's pissed. Okay, so I let her talk for, I don't know, probably 10 minutes, and I didn't do much to, to correct what she was saying. And so she was um, pissed because they put out a report on the number of people dying. In, let, like, stop me if this sounds familiar, okay? The number of people dying in long-term care as a result of COVID and then analyzing it based on public, private, not-for-profit, and private for-profit homes. Hmm. Hmm. Is anyone else doing that work? Yeah. So two weeks ago, probably even more because my weeks have all blended together, this organization was in touch with me. And they're like, your data is great. We see you're collecting data on the number of deaths in long-term care. And uh, yes, you, you are the other person doing <laughs> yeah. that. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, you know, the principal investigator and I have been in touch pretty much every night and I was sending him my updates of every day because every day I, up, I update this and it's kind of difficult, right? Because it's like I have 263 entries and that tends to grow maybe by one or two every night. And he was like, can you send me all of the increases just to Ontario homes? And so I was, I found a way to do it. It wasn't a super ideal way, but I was sending that to him almost every night and he filled in some of the blanks that I had. So I didn't have all of the homes if they were public or, or private. I had maybe half at the time. And, um, and then he added a couple of more columns. And so they released this report, uh, you know, using the number of my dead, which is like, I think the most important kind of column in this, in this report. But I mean, that is, even that is up for debate. And they don't credit me. <laughs> so I was like... Well, I'm, your your guy called me three times today to try and correct my data, but then actually corrected your data. I mean, you, we were in, in touch. 
And, uh, and they didn't credit me. So, I mean, I didn't make a big deal about it because it's a small not-for-profit. I was like, whatever. And uh, so a lot of people were like, Nora, this looks like what you've been doing. And I, I said a couple of times on Twitter, yeah, it's my data. And I think the most aggressive I got, which I mean, if you listen to me and read me online, you'll laugh because this is obviously not aggressive at all. But I said, you know, next time, please attribute me. And I also responded to the principal investigator and to this lady that called me uh, to say that I would appreciate for them to attribute me. And they never, they never replied to that. And so Saturday night, I get this fucking phone call. And she was like, I'm not sure, like demanding that I apologize publicly for what she said was attacking the Ontario Health Coalition. How dare I do that? Because they did, they did reference me. I was in a footnote in the report where they misidentified who I was working for. They misspelled my name and they attributed only the number of deaths and the name of the home of the home where they died to my research. Not the fact that I also had the cities that they were all located in, not that I didn't already have like the structure of the whole fucking thing. I didn't need much. I just wanted them to mention that they were using my research in their press release. And so this lady loses her mind like like in this aggressive unbelievable like fashion and I'm listening to her my kids are watching me my partner's watching me and I'm just like getting more and more mad because I've really not gotten any credit at all for doing this work and I know journalists are taking it and using it and not crediting me and so I'm like kind of getting pissed and so I just kind of like at the end basically told her that she needed to fuck herself and that I would be talking about it on the podcast and that the Ontario Health Coalition's board I mean, you guys have a problem with your executive director, which I found out um, with a lot of private messages from people who said that they couldn't speak publicly because they're actually afraid of her and the connections she has in the labor movement. But holy fuck, I, I have not received a phone call like that, I think, probably in my life. And this is I'm someone that's gotten calls like telling me to die. This was this was like. I mean, on the the radio version of this, was this shockingly unprofessional and unnecessary, considering that I'm fucking right, actually. <laughs> but anyway, wow, that I I just don't understand what the point of that is. Like, it seems pretty simple. Um, y'all fucked up. You didn't give credit where credit was due. Just give the credit where credit's due. Why do you need to call the person and yell at them, especially after they've done so much free labor for you? Yeah. <laughs> I. That seems uh, totally bizarre. I, I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah, it's just it's fuck her. It's one of these things. I mean, there's a generation of folks that are at not for profits in this country who have never ceded power to a new generation. And at this point, new generation is like fucking Gen X, <laughs> millennials, Gen Z, and. Their organizations are ineffective because they refuse to open themselves up to new ideas, to new voices, and to new people. And I think, I mean, this is an individual who was the head of this organization when you and I were both in the student movement. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't know if she was having a super bad day, but like the nerve it takes to call someone to yell at them for quote unquote attacking your organization because you didn't credit me. I mean, are you kidding me? I, I just couldn't believe it. And so, I mean, if you listen and your organization gives to the Ontario Health Coalition, like there has got to be some accountability. I personally don't want really much to do with the Ontario Health Coalition at this moment. I have nothing good to say about this organization and the way that they've dealt with me has been fucked up to the extreme. But I do hope that internally you folks have a conversation because if she treats me like this, uh, I, obviously she treats people who she sees as lesser than her even worse. And the messages I've received from people who've worked from her over the last 25 years prove that. And 
on the left, I mean, we protect people who are abusive and shitty too much. And I'm not saying that she's necessarily abusive and shitty. Maybe she was just having a bad night. But we have to be on top of this kind of thing because the left cannot tolerate people who may or may not be abusive and shitty. Well said. Fuck. <sighs> Thanks. Thanks. It was pretty brutal. I mean, I also like, like, to be honest, like after that call, I burst into tears yeah. and I fell on the ground and, the, and my kids were like, I'm sorry, are you going to die? <laughs> I was like, someone's going to die. I mean, <laughs> like, oh. look, I, as you know, have had a similar conversation once an error ago <laughs> with, oh my God, should I say his name? Look, we're doing, we're doing what the people said. Now, I, the, uh. <laughs> I, I once got a call out of the blue from Sid Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> I was around when this happened, oh, so all this God. is true. Uh, anyway, I won't. I I know what the aftermath of some of those what those calls can be like. <laughs> so um, uh, I don't envy you, and um, it is it's a good thing to talk about it and let people know like that that type of stuff is uh, unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's get into it. UBI. <laughs> so guess what? <laughs> Okay, I I just kept seeing recently all of these people saying that we just need a UBI. We need a Actually, UBI. Bef before I even get into that, <laughs> um, oh, I don't know if I should say. I, actually, like, fuck. So I get I get an email <laughs> this week. Okay, it's from UCLA. They're doing what Canada should do. <laughs> They're giving every student a universal impact award. What? Mm -hmm. Every single student gets it. Um, and if a student uh, doesn't want it because they don't need it, they can opt out. And then it'll go back into a pool for more impact grants uh, for students who require it. So you can apply for more money um, on top of the universal impact award and that's just what they're doing they're to, to try to help students imagine which imagine that <laughs> I, i'm just like fuck my my school figured it out but canada can't it just it seems so easy <laughs> you know i just and and you know they're like oh we don't have access to everyone's bank accounts which is as you know canada's excuse yes and they're like so um here's a website where uh you could uh if we don't have access to your bank account you could just Sign up right here. <laughs> it's just, I'm like, no, you, it can't be that simple. And then they're also like, hey, if you don't have a bank account, because we know that some students don't, we got you covered. Wow. <laughs> Here's another website you can go to where we'll just cut you a check and send it to your home. Now, do you know if this is like UCLA or if it's the whole UC system? That's a good question. I think it's UCLA. Um, cause I got the email is from, uh, the UCLA, uh, chancellor, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's the whole UC system. So let me get back to you on that. We can, um, update the people next week, but I'm just like, yeah. and the only reason why I ask is because, is because the UC system is so big. It's like Ontario's entire college system. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's true. Um, so we're not talking about like peanuts here. Like these are serious fucking numbers of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the UCLA itself is, I think 60,000 people. Um, so, you know imagine that uh berkeley is is a similar similarly sized school and plus all the other ucs it's just it's a lot it's a lot of people so um anyway uc figured it out and i mean 
Uh, that's kind of related to this idea of a universal basic income. Uh, people, I've been seeing a lot of people on the timeline, on Twitter, on Facebook saying, you know, if the government would just give us a universal basic income, all of these problems would be solved. We wouldn't be in the situation that we're in right now. Um, this is what we need uh, in order to make sure that people have what they need, uh, not just for the COVID crisis, but uh, moving forward in the future forever. And I was frustrated seeing a lot of these discussions because I, th I think that they're like totally missing the point. So I wrote on my Twitter um, that a, I don't know exactly how I phrased it, but I said something like a universal access to strong social programs are better than universal basic income. And I got quite a bit of response. Some people saying, why can't we have both? Um, which is like, yeah, we can. It does not stop the fact that universal access to a strong social social programs are better than UBI, whether we have them both or not. It's like, you know, you could say uh, fucking shirts are better than tank tops, but still have both. <laughs> you know what I mean? In your closet. <laughs> you can still have both, but prefer one over the other. And it's just one is better than the other. And we'll talk about why. Um, and then other people who are like, why would you even say that? Obviously, uh, universal basic income is better because then people can choose what they want or do what they want. And I'm like, ah, ah, <laughs> OK, so here we are. We're going to discuss this again because we have discussed it before. Um, and, you know, we had clarity before, but even like, like now in a in a in a sea of crisis, I think uh, the discussion is going to have even more clarity post Andrew Yang, like the most clarity. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned him because I know that you've been hanging around with a lot of, of the, the Yang gang. People, people were <laughs> hanging around. Wait, don't make people think that what? No. Okay. My choice of people that I hang with is better than that. Okay. There are just people around campus who happen to wear math buttons. <laughs> that is so pathetic. For, for okay. those of you who don't know, uh, like Andrew Yang's <laughs> materials are literally, um, or they were, I guess, because this is over for him, uh, like hats and buttons <laughs> that just said math on them. Math. math. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I just imagine like an infant whose first word is ma math. Math. <laughs> You're like, why, why are you saying that, kid? <laughs> math. Oh, okay, cool. Bizarre. <laughs> Oh, so bizarre. The universal basic income is, um, it's a really fun thing to debate, I have to admit. I, the, the, the way that the, the debate gets uh, turned into a whole bunch of different ways can be a bit tedious. And I was surprised at some of the responses that you got as well, because I saw that pop up kind of over and over in my feed as people kept on engaging on this question. And so, you know, the thing that I think of first when I think of explaining the problems with the universal basic income is the pathways to education program. Mm -hmm. And if you're not aware of what that program is, or maybe it's a bit too uh, much of a, of a analogy to, to make the connections, here's the connection. So Ontario's tuition fees double more than double in 10 years. And the poorest students obviously bear the biggest brunt of the repercussions of tuition fees increasing so fast. And so 
the government creates all these programs to try and help students pay even though tuition fees are going up. And a lot of the programs are, are confusing grant programs that are bureaucratic, that cost a lot of money to administer, that leave a lot of people falling through the cracks. I mean, you're listening to this, you might think CERB, right? Like the, the big thing that's <laughs> bothering everyone now. Um, but the program that was like the most successful that always got students from like being ultra poor 17 year olds to degree holding 21 year olds or whatever was the program pathways for education and what pathways did was paid for literally everything students had bus tokens to get to school had their tuition fees paid for they were given the social supports that they needed to get through school and because of the massive amount of supports that they gave to the students these students were successful. And the the Ontario liberals especially were able to say, here's a Pathways kid. He was so super poor and now he's going to be a doctor and the program works. And therefore, uh, tuition fees going up isn't a big problem. And it's like, well, of course a student is going to succeed if you pay for everything for them and give them social supports. That's literally what we advocate for all students. And those supports have to you know, be geared towards the kinds of needs that the students have. And so people who are, are, are more poor, have more struggles, need more supports. But that's not how it works within the liberal system. And I use that, that word with a lowercase l. The conservatives create the system as well. They, they will put those upfront user fees while they try to say on the back end, but we're going to make sure that there's universal access through these kinds of grants. And that's kind of the problem with the universal basic income, which is this idea that all we need mm-hmm. is a guaranteed income, and then we can use our consumer intelligence to put our money into healthcare if we need it, to put our money into tuition fees if we need it, to put our money into fucking going to bingo if we want, to buy clothes, like whatever. And that's where the problem really lies, is that it's a public subsidy of the private market. And then there's no justification for the public to fund those social services. Precisely. I mean, like we have a choice, right? Like we could, um, we could fund what we need, or we could get individuals to fund what they need individually. And when I say that universal access to strong social programs is better than Uh, a universal basic income, what I mean is that it is better to make sure that everybody in society can communicate with one another for free, can have um, access to housing for free, to food for free, to education for free, to healthcare for free, to necessary medicine and uh, childcare for free. And sure, if you want on top of that to give them a universal basic income, for sure. But in absence of having all of those really strong social programs, what is the point of just having a universal basic income when those uh, social programs, if they are not funded in the way that they need to be funded, could just continue to go up in the same way that we see, uh, you know, long-term hair, uh, care facilities, the prices for those going up, education, the prices, prices for education going up, the cost for transportation going up. If it's just a blanket universal basic income, you are still going to have people who will not be able to afford the things that they need because we need these things uh, at different levels. And the only way that we can ensure that everybody in society gets what they need is if we make it universally accessible, the actual programs, not access to money so that we can then access those programs. And, uh, you know, I... I, I hear people who reference um, 
programs who've, that have been tried in particular places, uh, which makes a lot of sense because if it's not uh, if it's a if it's a program of UBI that's been tried in a in a in a small place um, that is still dependent on an economy that doesn't revolve around UBI, it may work a little differently. But if if everything is universal, a universal basic income, the market is going to move with that. It's just going to unless unless we make sure that we are um, adequately funding strong social services. Well, that, that's the most important part of this discussion, actually, the, the interplay between the, the market-oriented uh, idea that you give people the money that they need to live versus uh, creating these social programs and making sure that there's universality built into them. And I think that the current moment, it's such a great time to be reflecting on this stuff because um, you know, people have asked me as well, uh, will you sign this petition for a UBI going forward, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, I 100% support a universal basic income to get through this pandemic. That is not the same as a universal basic income outside of the pandemic. And the reason why it's not the same is because of, the, of what we've already said, that there is an interplay between money that if you only have $10 billion and you give everybody a universal basic income, you will see healthcare and education being cut because our taxation levels aren't adequate. And, you know, Quebec Solidaire was the only political party that I saw that was talking about both a minimum income and free public social services and supports. And the way that that was talked about in Quebec was uh, a citizen's income. Now, the word citizen in Quebec doesn't mean the same word in English. And so it doesn't mean you must be a citizen to receive this income, but it is the income that you receive as being a member of the citizenship or the people that live in a province or in a town or whatever. And uh, because that was being talked in combination with uh, free higher education, free daycare, free public transit, and this kind of thing, that is the only way to make this possible. And so every time you hear a liberal talking about this, this is where we need to be suspect because the liberals have no intention of making things universal. As we know, they couldn't even make uh, the Serb universal in a situation where it needed to be universal. And I think that that's really confused a lot of people. And, um, and I think that that's where the conversation has to happen, which is like, there's the theoretical and there's the practical. And in the practical world, who is promising free, universal education, health, social services, transportation, all this kind of thing, and a universal basic income? Because if no one is promising that, then the universal basic income that is being talked about, mostly by the liberals, is going to undercut those universal public services. And that's where people need to be very, very careful when we're talking about the UBI. And this is also, you know, why, why it's important to talk about, about Andrew Yang, because he really, I think, kind of exposed that side of his platform, which was really that it was a consumer choice, that you were given this $15,000 guaranteed income, and then you use your purchasing power to make political decisions, which is like some kind of dystopian fucking nightmare that I don't think that progressives actually want to find themselves in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, um, you know, if we if you if we don't have universal basic income, um, let's let's imagine um, that we we do have it. Let's imagine we have universal basic income and it doesn't get implemented with the types of uh, strong social programs or controls that it needs uh, that it needs in a city like, say, Vic, uh, Vancouver or a city like Toronto or Montreal, where the housing market was. I don't know what's going on with it now, but where the housing market was beginning to like really balloon, 
what does it do if, you know, right now, like 50 to 60% of your income is going to your rent or to your housing cost? And then you get a UBI where it's like, okay, well, now it's like 40% of your income. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's good. You know, like it doesn't it's not when I hear people say like this is going to solve the problems. Like, let's imagine that we had universal basic income before um, COVID dropped. I don't know that it would have solved all of our problems. It maybe would have made things certain things a little bit easier um, had had all the social programs stayed as they they were and people didn't use it as a excuse to siphon off from other uh, social programs, perhaps. But Imagine we had a universal system of really strong social programs. It literally would solve everything. Yeah. It wouldn't leave people in the type of lurch that they're in right now. I mean, the biggest problems you would have is not about, like, the economy or or people not being able to work. It would more be about, like, oh, can we build a fucking hospital? You know, like, that would be the, the place that we're at rather than trying to scramble and get people this inadequate uh, social program serb uh, to try to fill in the gaps that we could have been filling for years uh, had we had a really strong social uh, a system of social programs and that is where I think ethically um, whether we're in a crisis time or not we need to focus now I agree with you that like yeah uh, a universal program right now um, makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I also think that right now is also the time where, as progressive people, we need to seriously be pushing uh, uh, um, an argument for strengthening our social programs and for making our social programs free of user fees. I think that that is where I would like to see you know, all of the, the conversations that I'm seeing on my timeline that say UBI, UBI, UBI forever coming out of this. Like I, I want the 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 prevailing discussion coming out of this to be like, here is proof of why we need strong social programs, not just here's proof of why we need UBI. Like, sure, we could have UBI on top of strong social programs if we want. Like, literally, it's like a tank top in my in my in my closet. Like, it's like okay, good to have, great to have, sure, whatever. You're but being really LA about absence. this shirt thing. <laughs> I don't really like tank tops that much. No, but it's so <laughs> cold here. I can't wear one. <laughs> I'm fucking melting right now. It's like 30 degrees. <laughs> anyway, I could use some polar vortex over here. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, like I it's like nice to have. But what is necessary to have, what is ethical in society, what is good for everyone is having access to these social programs that are universal, that truly benefit everyone in society and also benefit the economy. The funny thing about who I see talking about the UBI is it's very generational. I mean, I'm seeing people who are like millennials and younger talking about the UBI. Are, are you noticing that too? Or is it a little bit more diverse in the age front? Um, you know, I didn't look at it that way, so I'm not sure I think it's kind of everywhere. But but tell me what what you're seeing from that. Yeah, I'm seeing mostly young people and it tells me that there's no memory of what social programs once looked like in mm. this country. Mm -hmm. And that the idea of how bad things have actually gotten today is not really like has not left its mark 
on the on the soul of of a certain age of people in this country probably because they just don't know right so like the idea that you can work a summer job at minimum wage and pay off your tuition fees that was normal for 25 years in the emergence of the public college and then public nationalization of the university system that was normal right the idea that you can have healthcare that isn't bursting at the seams or, you know, long-term care didn't even really exist in the same way back then. People didn't live as long. And now we're seeing long-term care be this like incredible private fucking nightmare where people are dying in the thousands. And I think that like the problem with UBI is it's so easy to to say that's what we need we just need fifteen thousand dollars a year to to live and there's not much thought about the subsidy that that does create as you said from the public purse right into private coffers so ubi without intense rent control is just a fucking gift to landlords or gift to banks for mortgages or whatever and no one's talking about that push and pull aspect of what happens when you give people extra money without actually capping without actually capping the costs of their day-to-day existence right transit fees are gonna go up and so what the fuck difference is a ubi if transit costs twice what it costs all of a sudden your ubi is disappeared and and you know like there is an interesting conversation emerging in canada right now the ndp the canadian labor congress is is trying to drive this discussion on on bringing long-term care into the canada health act basically making a public part of the public health care system which is a really great discussion and i think it's it's the only discussion that I've heard of expanding public services in the way that you talked about since this crisis began. Um, and, you know, it's it's a necessary discussion. I'm really, really happy that they're having it. But it's also like the most obvious one because that's the biggest crisis that we're facing right now. So where are the discussions about all of the other problems that we have, like like uh, hallway medicine and uh, the cost of tuition fees and the lack of childcare and all this kind of stuff? And I think that because it feels so complex and that lack of memory of how the social safety net did exist in the post-war period and did create the prosperity that Canadians think we still have, even though we haven't had it in 30 years of, of neoliberalism. And then it's just easier to say, yeah, no, it's the UBI that we need. That That's what we need. And that is why the liberals are so interested in it, because they know that the UBI could be a fucking massive gift to their corporate buddies because then Loblaws will get more of it and, you know, fucking Amazon will get more of it and your landlord will get more of it. I I, I really hope that UBI proponents think a lot more about this aspect to it. And, and as you say, put that energy into advocating for public services because that's pretty much the clear thing that has sunk us. I mean, if there was a UBI, if you think of it for the most vulnerable among us, a UBI for someone who is paying to live in a care facility and to have 24-hour care because they can't take care of themselves isn't going to do anything if the care facility is for-profit and private and and you know requiring 10,000 or 8,000 dollars a month. And so we have to think about, you know, how do we put the most vulnerable people in the center of our policy making decisions and say, okay, what actually are those instruments that we have within society to make to make people's lives easier? And it becomes then you're actually arguing about universality, which is something that liberals actually hate. And you expose them really quickly uh, when you start talking about universal social programs rather than just this lump sum UBI idea. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, like when you started talking about um, the memory of uh, of social programs, I started thinking about something that I've been thinking, you know, thinking about watching um, a lot of people respond to what's happening right now. I think that money, like the idea of money, uh, really warps the way that people see what they need. Because right now, at, at a super vulnerable time for a lot of people where unemployment is very high, people don't necessarily know um, uh, what their future is going to look like with respect to their employment, people are thinking, I need money. I need the economy to be open. I need to work. I need money to survive. But that's not actually what you need to survive. <laughs> I mean, what you need to survive is like food, water, uh, you know, shelter, like all of these things that you use your money for. And it's like, why don't we just skip that piece in the middle? <laughs> yeah. Just like, can we expand our imaginations a little bit to figure out a way where it's like, okay, well, what if I didn't have to rely on the money part and I could just still survive? Like that is a lot of what I think is missing. It just, it becomes... So easy, like it's, you know, at the at the the worst end of this, you know, um, beyond all like the fucking white supremacy that's happening in the United States and in some places in Canada, uh, you know, you have people who are have, you know, guns who are like demanding the ability to like work like you could you could ask for anything right now. <laughs> You're just like. I want to go back to working for the man. It just seems so strange. And it's just like, like I, I think it's like a, a, like a dearth of what we, we think is possible in our minds, but it is possible to demand that from the taxes that you pay to the government that is supposed to return your taxes back to you in services that your services are fucking better, <laughs> uh, like now and forever. And, you know, I just, it, it has to be a part of our imagination that we don't need this, this level of money to, you know, uh, to be like a middleman between us and what we need. Like, why? Like, we, we can, we can see it when we, you know, go to the hospital or when we go uh, uh, to to um, see a doctor, we can see it when we uh, send our kids to, to school or when we're going to school in primary education, primary and secondary education. Why can't we see it elsewhere? Like that, that is what we need. Like the ability to survive um, user fee free, hopefully uh, as much as possible, which is like all the way possible. Um, that's what we need to survive, not money. There, there's a listener uh, of the podcast who is, you know, a little bit more right wing, uh, not a, a guy who would say he's progressive. And he surprised me at the beginning of this pandemic by saying that he didn't understand why the government didn't just give everybody rice, that we all didn't just have a rice ration that we were able to like have as our base. Mm hmm. And I was the first time I ever really thought about rice in that way. And I was like, yep, <laughs> yep. What, where the fuck is my rice rationing? <laughs> right. It just, it just, it like, I, I, I can't recall when this became obvious to me, but when it became obvious, it was like, oh yeah. Like why the fuck would, uh, you know, would we need money 
if we could just focus on the actual programs, like if we could just focus on what we need, it's like, come on, let's just, let's just get what we need. And I just, I think that there's a huge opportunity right now. Um, and uh, people, there's many people who obviously recognize that there's a huge opportunity because there's a lot of people who are organizing for UBI, who've started petitions to, to start a UBI, to make sure that we get UBI, um, uh, both, you know, for as long as this crisis lasts, but coming out of the crisis. And I, I, I think that we, we have to also recognize that there's a very strong opportunity here uh, to shift the way that we view fund and have access to our social services. And uh, I, I just don't want it to get muddled. I don't want it to get confused with people that uh, UBI is the same or would be just as good as a strong social service. No, strong social services are better. They're 100% <laughs> better. They're just fucking better. It's a better um, uh, long-term strategy for making sure that people uh, are taken care of in the way that they need to be taken care of. I am not opposed to UBI, but I am opposed to it in, in absence of that. Okay, UBI can be progressive. It is not progressive if it doesn't happen on top of a strong social program that is universally accessible. Mm -hmm. 